Welcome to the Davos Rates Exchange. I'm Deidre. And I'm Megan. And we have on our podcast today, Tracy Bussey. Um, I'm just going to tell you about her in her words, and then I'm going to actually turn the mic over to you, Tracy, so you can, you can flush that out for us. But Tracy is a professional counselor, writer, teacher, and spiritual director. For the past 20 years, she has provided therapy to children and adult survivors of trauma and human trafficking. She also provides consultation and training to a variety of organizations who serve leaders and marginalized populations. Tracy is currently working on a doctorate in spiritual direction at Fuller Theological Seminary, where she's exploring the intersect between spiritual formation and neuroscience. Tracy resides in Atlanta, Georgia, and finds delight on her paddleboard, hiking, playing the guitar, painting, traveling, and resting in the company of fellow image bearers. Welcome, Tracy. Oh, thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. That bio, we both kind of geek out about it. We're like neuroscience and spirituality. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, I love it too. That's why I have decided to write a dissertation on it to my, um, you know, pain and suffering. <laughs> but it's joyful pain and suffering. So don't worry about me. <laughs> I was going to say, hopefully you will still love it after that dissertation. <laughs> I know I will. I know I will. I just heard a podcast on someone's dissertation topic the other day and I texted Deidre and I was like, I'm going to go get my doctorate. I, I have a topic in mind. I know what I want to write it on. And then I downloaded that person's dissertation. And I was like, oh, that was 294 pages. Never mind. I'm not writing a dissertation. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think mine's allowed to be that long. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> well, tell really us a little cool. bit more about you. Just we want to get to know you. Gosh, I don't, I'm not even really sure where to start. Um, you know, the bio kind of covers like the broad strokes of, you know, what I do and who I am. Um, from a professional standpoint, you know, a lot of my work, as I mentioned, has been working with um, survivors of human trafficking. And so, and I've worked a lot with children and adolescents, you know, who've been in child protective services or, you know, within the juvenile justice system. And so trauma has been a big part of my career for the last 20 years. And I've been very fortunate to have a lot of cool training um, over the years through the different organizations I've worked with. And, you know, so I get to do EMDR or an approach called progressive counting method or, you know, my, my current love, which is polyvagal theory. Um, and as you guys know, IFS has really become my favorite approach in working with trauma. Oh, yeah. Well, and I just want to tell our listeners, I came to know you by going to a workshop where you were the main uh, presenter for the day and sitting in the back of the room, just, you know, taking notes, you regulate people, just your voice, your presence, you just bring regulation to overwork systems. <laughs> and um, that is, it's so beautiful. So I can just attest to like the spirit that you bring into the spaces that you come into is so grounded and beautiful and peaceful. So thank you for that. It's very evident that you would be a beautiful asset with people who have trauma and don't know how to regulate themselves, haven't had that gift in someone before. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit more because we haven't really, we have talked internal family systems, but just explain what polyvagal is, the polyvagal theory. Yeah, so um, polyvagal theory was developed by Stephen Porges, um, maybe back in the 80s, I, I should know this, but I don't. And, but basically what he did was he identified, we have this vagus nerve in our body and it has 
a ventral portion and then a dorsal portion. And then we have our sympathetic nervous system. And what he started to realize is that these three parts work intricately together in the way that we respond to, you know, situations in our life that make us feel unsafe. Um, but they also do a lot of regulatory things. And so where a lot of the science was focused just on the brain, um, polyvagal theory looks at the whole body because what the vagus nerve does is it stretches like from the back of your head down your core and then like branches out into your limbs. Mm -hmm. And so there is no part of your body that is not impacted by the vagus nerve. And what he realized is that when we're in, we're in a regulated state, we are in our ventral vagal state. And so the ventral vagus nerve is where we feel safe and connected with others in the world. Mm. And then the dorsal is when we go to a complete shutdown. And then the sympathetic is when we're in fight or flight, we're anxious, we're angry, we're frustrated. Now, when all three of those parts are operating optimally, they do wonderful things. You know, so for example, sympathetic is going to regulate your heart rate and your breathing and the dorsal is gonna regulate your digestive system. Mm -hmm. And so we want all three of these parts working. It's just how they work is what matters. Um, and as you can imagine, as we talk about IFS, they integrate well together. Um, because as we talk in IFS about, you know, connecting to that self, that self-led part or the core self is kind of how I refer to it. Um, that is your ventral vagal state. It's having one foot in ventral vagal when we are self-led. Yeah, so draw that line, that parallel out for us a little bit more, because I think what you would say then is the other foot is in sympathetic, or is that only when we're dealing with someone else? Is that just when we're like helping someone else regulate? You know, it depends. I, I, there are so many different ways of integrating the different states of which we're in. Um, you know, part of my research right now is realizing that we can even have one foot in ventral and one foot in dorsal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it just depends on what the need of the system is. And when you can think about it from an IFS standpoint, for those who are familiar with IFS, you know, like we have, you know, the different protector parts. And so it's kind of like we're taking the core self, which has a foot and ventral, and it's having a conversation with the protector. Mm -hmm. And that protector might be located in your dorsal system or your sympathetic system, um, you know, it has connections to both. And so it just depends what part we're talking to. Um, yeah. So when we're talking um, IFS language and we're saying that an exile got flooded or a protector got activated, what you're saying is connecting it back to the neuroscience of it is that one of these other systems is what is on alert now. Like we have a foot in dorsal or in sympathetic as opposed right. to being in our ventral vagal. Yeah. And like, you know, and this is going to be a stereotypical um, statement towards IFS, but like, I'm going to make an assumption that a lot of the exiles sit in dorsal yeah. and that a lot of the firefighters sit in sympathetic. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so in, you know, in polyvagal theory, they have this like ladder theory that you have to go up and down the ladder to, you know, access the different parts of your system, the, the nervous system. And so when we are in ventral, and we know this in IFS, when we get to our core self, um, we usually have to go through a firefighter or a policeman to get to the exile. And yeah. so you're going through sympathetic to get to the dorsal. Okay, that makes sense. 
Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many people we just lost, but I'm like totally geeked out by that. <laughs> this is not a question I was going to ask, but flesh this out for our listeners, like with an example of why this is important. Like if you live in the sympathetic area too long and you don't know how to get regulated to come back mm-hmm. uh, to your core self. Yeah. I mean, it has a lot of implications and I won't be able to cover all of them. Um, But, you know, in two areas, like on one area, when we are completely unsympathetic, we are not able to connect with others in safety. Mm. Um, You know, our relationships get strained and there's a lot more conflict in relationship um, or hurt feelings. Um, on the internal side, it, it literally affects the way we breathe. It affects our cardiovascular health. And, you know, so it has a lot of internal impacts for our physical health while also impacting the relationship outside of us. And it really, I think, impacts our relationship with ourselves and with God. Sure. Yeah. And so that is something I think is very interesting. I know we've, we've jumped into a topic that was going to be a little bit later in my mind, but I think this is super cool. Um, the relationship and how you in your study for your thesis are putting together this spirituality with the polyvagal theory. So tell us where that intersects and how that looks for us. Mm-hmm. Um Yes. And without like, getting too deep into it, yeah. just your whole dissertation in like 30 seconds would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my dissertation is really focused on Ignatian spirituality, which I think could be hard to describe the whole of Ignatian spirituality. Right. But I will say this about Ignatian spirituality. It is an effective spirituality because it's a practical spirituality. It focuses on very specific practices like reflection, imaginative prayer, um, learning how to see how God sees you, um, being able to have a conversation with God, like God as a friend, you know, so those are some of the elements of Ignatian prayer that I'm integrating with polyvagal theory. Um, And how it impacts it is one, especially in terms of trauma, um, you know, and I I define trauma pretty broadly. um, And Stephen Porges, who is the founder of polyvagal theory, defines it broadly. He talks about it as disruptions of connection. Um, you know, and I, I think that's such a helpful way to think about it because when we are not connected with others in safety, then we are separated from them. And then if that continues and he talks about it as chronic disruptions of connectedness. And so if it happens over and over and over again, you start to develop a way of being in your body that protects yourself. And that's where all these protectors come from in IFS therapy, whether you have severe trauma or not, Um, because we've all had experiences of disconnectedness. Um, I think COVID's a perfect example of like how the pandemic went, that we all were disconnected in some way to someone. And so we've had that experience. And what happens is, you know, we become disconnected from God and our spirituality because of different traumas and experiences in life. And if we are operating out of our sympathetic state, which you could think of as the fight or fight, the flight or flight, fight or flight place, yes. And, you know, God might feel like a God who's absent or a God who's judging um, or a God who doesn't care about me um, or a God who doesn't give me what I want. Like, and so we struggle with our view of who God is and our relationship to God from that state. 
um, you know, same thing with the dorsal. And so image of God is a really big part of what I'm studying right now. And then how do we reconnect people to a God of love? And how do we develop intimacy with God using our nervous system to regulate them to a place so that they can connect? Because you guys heard me earlier say when I'm in sympathetic or dorsal, I can't have good connection with other humans. Well, the same is true with God. It's really hard to connect to God in a safe and loving way if I'm not in a good space. Um, until, and this is kind of the cool part, like until we find a pathway to have at least one foot in ventral. Mm-hmm. And that one foot can be a regulating other. And so, you know, Deidre, when you were talking about, you know, my the tone of my voice in a training, creating a sense of safety or connection, I forget the words you used, um, like an outside person can actually automatically get one foot in ventral for another person that gives them access to God themselves or another. And so that's what we're learning how to do. Yeah. That has huge implications because it can be so, that means there's hope and there's healing. We're not alone, you know. Yeah, no, it's so exciting, especially, you know, I work with a lot of folks who have church trauma or have some sort of spiritual abuse in their past. And and just the, um, the tears I have seen come and the, and the good tears of delight when they realize they can have a relationship with God and that God does care about them, it's probably one of the most rewarding things I do Mm -hmm. um, is to see that reconnection happen after something harmful from a religious um, orientation happened to them. I'm just picturing what that looks like. So there are some versions of Christianity that would understand when you're using words like practice or those kinds of things. I would say in my more evangelical growing up years, that is not a word we would have used. We certainly had our own brand of liturgy, but we didn't use that word either. Um, yeah. To even say the word, I don't know, breathing or meditation or anything like that. We had, we put a lot of disclaimers around it, right? (laughs) So this is new language for some people who are listening, maybe, and uh, so I, I would really like just talk a little bit more about what does a spiritual practice look like? And I know that sounds so elemental probably to you, but for some of us who didn't use that language in our churches, um, yeah. what is that like in practice? Yeah, well, I, and I want to normalize it, you know, for folks who come from those traditions. Yeah. Um, because like, you know, those traditions would talk about devotions mm-hmm. and Bible study and Quiet prayer. time and quiet time exactly. And so these are activities we do in those spaces is probably the simplest way I could put it. That's good. And, you know, the whole goal, you know, prayer to me is just connection with God and how we connect with God varies in so many ways. And Richard Foster is a great resource for folks, I think, from evangelical traditions. You know, he wrote the book Celebration of Disciplines. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that's pretty accessible for a lot of folks from a lot of different traditions, Mm -hmm. but, you know, he talks through how like, you know, prayer, meditation, fasting, um, you know, scripture reading and memorization. And like, he just goes through the whole variety of practices that help us to connect with God. And, And I think it varies in different seasons. And, you know, I like the word practices over disciplines, and that has a lot more to do with my training and wanting to be strength-based 
Yeah. Um, I just don't like the word discipline. That's that's just a personal thing. Yeah. But it, it really is just something we're practicing to get closer to God. Mm-hmm. And like right now, I'm in a season where silence and solitude is really helping me to connect with God. It's really stillness is my practice right now. And this practice of stillness is what's connecting me. Yes. Those, those three S words you use, silence, solitude, and stillness. I first learned about those as spiritual practices for Enneagram types through oh, cool. Chris Huritz's book, um, The Sacred Enneagram. So I'm guessing yeah. that's some Father Richard Rohr. I'm assuming that's from him, his teachings. That's who he studied under, which would have been some yeah. of that Ignatian um, type of spirituality, I would think. Yeah. Uh, Father Richard Rohr, yeah, he comes from the Franciscan tradition. And, oh, okay. and, the, and the Franciscans and the Ignatians are kind of like good brothers in a yeah, lot of ways. Gotcha. Um, because the Franciscans are not an actual order of the Catholic Church. And I think, um, you know, the Jesuits are. However, I, I think some of the, there's so much overlap between the two is what I want to say to you, because they are all so like centered on God's love. Mm-hmm. And they're also both very social justice oriented groups that came out of the Catholic church. Um, they both are very service oriented. Um, and so I, I appreciate both those traditions. And I think there is a lot of overlap. And honestly, Ignatius, um, he a lot of his practices that he developed he learned from his predecessors. And so Ignatius was around in the 16th century. And so he was gaining his insights from like the desert mothers and fathers from like, you know, 300 AD, you know, and Richard Rohr talks about that in his Enneagram Mm -hmm. book too, like that history. And I think Chris does too, as well in his book a little bit, you know, and so all of these spiritual traditions, like they have their origins in the early church anyways. And so like, if we talked about contemplation or meditation or stillness and silence and solitude, that would have just been a normal thing back in the day, you know? And I think, you know, we've gotten away from it and it's a lot to do because of the reformation. Um, I think there was this kind of division that happened because there was an abuse around the practices that were out there. Um. And we just live in a culture that's so loud, <laughs> you know, it's and busy. It's <laughs> so hard to turn those things off. Uh, um, so yeah, inter- yeah. interesting that you brought up uh, Enneagram. We did kind of gloss over that earlier. I'm very curious uh, to know more about your journey personally with that. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. And this will be indicative of my Enneagram type when you find out what it is. But um, I was so resistant to the Enneagram when I first learned about it. And, you know, I was like, this is dumb. It's so negative. Like it just points out people's faults. And, you know, I didn't find it to be helpful, you know, but then I was like, okay, let me figure out what I am. And, you know, I still laugh about this because I don't know how I came up with this. I do know how I came up with it, but like I identified early as a seven, which is completely not my number. And for five years, I sat in the place saying that I was a seven. And then one day, one of my best friends was like, "Um, you're not a seven. And she was kind of an Enneagram nerd. And she was like, you might want to explore that a little bit deeper. Um, You know, and then it took me on a long journey of discovery, you know, to really think through. And then I was this number and that number. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of us had that experience where it was like this angst around trying to figure out what our number was. And, you know, I had two experiences that really helped me solidify my number. And you know, one was the Sleeping at Last podcast. It really just helped me a lot. And um, and this is 
I was listening to the four and my friend had said I was a four and I was like, no, I'm not. And, and it was because I don't identify. And I, I don't actually still think this is true of me. Like, I'm like, I'm not a diva, you know, like I don't have this like outward, like theatrical self. And then yet at the same time, like all of a sudden I'm listening to the sleeping at last podcast. And I was like, yes, yes. And then like, you know how he plays the song on that podcast. He, he, you know, does songs for each Enneagram type. Mm-hmm. And I just start bawling, <laughs> start singing the four song. And I was like, that's so who I am. Um, and well, then- as a fellow four, uh-huh. I also really love and appreciate that song. And it hits me every time I hear it. So, yeah, so you know, <laughs> I do. And I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a diva either. That's not a word I would like ascribe to fours in general, I don't think. So that's yeah, I, interesting. The more yeah, and I had heard that, that and that's what they're What's that, Deidre? I wonder more the more creative types can be, or the ones who really just want to stand out uniquely in their creativity or something, maybe would get that. Well, or the drama queen kind of thing may lend itself to the diva. It's very like stereotyping though. That's not very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I think that was the other thing that I appreciated about that particular podcast is they really noticed the strengths and the evolution of the person. And so it wasn't just like when you're in your worst place or, you know, average for it's saying like along the whole line. And, you know, and I I love this way of thinking of like, you know, and this is very Ignatian too, actually, but like, you know, a four, for instance, we can really get into our emotions, right. And we can just swim in those places and we want to even like fantasize and feel them deeper and intensify them. And that can be very unhelpful if we sit there for a really long time. And what's really cool though, it is those very emotions that enable us to connect with others with compassion and authenticity um, and in a a different way that maybe others have capacity for um, when we're operating from a healthier place. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, there's always a, a strength underneath what is even on you know for all the Enneagram numbers like whatever our stress numbers are stress movements are like we have strengths under there that when we start moving towards health they just like blossom you know and even in Ignatian spirituality it would say like hey even when we're moving away from God once we notice how we've moved away from God and we connect to God in that place wherever we are then God takes that space and shows us what our desire there was mm-hmm. and what is the thing that we actually want mm-hmm. um, and that's why we've turned away is because we're seeking out something that we were created to seek we just went the wrong direction I think that right there is the heart of why we connected with internal family systems because yeah. so often in the church we deal with the behavior of whatever we turn to as the problem Yes. Instead of recognizing the longing that is a, it is a God side. It is a good longing. It's a good desire that he required in us to have connection, yes. belonging, impact, significance. These are all good mm-hmm. things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's because we turn away to something else when we feel that, that we just need to yeah. turn so it's such a gentle, it's not repentance, like with a, a you know, if you, you did this and so therefore this is the punishment. It's a, it's just a turning back. 
It's just that simple and kind and sweet. And Mm his loving connection to us in that place is so beautiful. I just feel like the church has erred so hardly on so hard, hardly, (laughs) that's not the right word. So rigidly on the side of the behavior focus on that. And therefore there is some kind of punishment that is associated with that. Where is the connection there? Where is the love and what victims can do to change us? Uh, so that yeah just the way you worded that is so beautiful that's exactly well and when you're focused on the behavior and the sin and you can just stop sinning someone could be completely outwardly perfect looking and still have no connection with god and with themselves and with other people that's correct Mm -hmm. yeah they're in a very controlled state yeah Mm -hmm. so i'm yeah i'm not surprised that you're for because of a few things you said but you would (laughs) You wouldn't share your type in the training, which I appreciate. We weren't talking Enneagram there, but (laughs) the reason I even approached you during one of the breaks was when you were giving an example and you said, well, this might, this woman might be like this, 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 this. And you even talked about grew up in the evangelical setting. Uh, Maybe she wants to go dance, but doesn't think she should like five different, very specific examples that were like, I was your avatar for that example, but you didn't know me. (laughs) And you said, she might be. I don't know if you know the Enneagram, like an Enneagram one. And I'm sitting back there like, this, that's me. You're talking about me. <laughs> and we love our Enneagram ones. <laughs> so, sometimes we do. <laughs> like uh, we four, said, we fours need our Enneagram ones. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. We all have our so. strengths and the shadow sides of it. And we have to work on those places. But <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so I want to kind of come back around just for a minute before we wrap this up, because we are on a trauma series. Um, you, I love the way you defined it, because all of us have some kind of trauma and of disconnection. Um, how can we put this into practice, though, in a way that helps us love others better, whether we're counseling survivors of trafficking or just dealing with people in our lives that and we don't know their story, you know, what mm-hmm. there's, I know that's a huge like gamut of possibilities there. But yeah, what is the, how do you move through your world in a more connected way to others? Yeah, well, I, I'll take a IFS approach to this if I can, mm-hmm. um, because it, it's so similar internal and external what we need to do. Um, because, you know, part of IFS, right, is we get our core part, we get centered in that core part, and then we separate the whichever part needs to have a conversation with us. And we get to a place where we are feeling compassionate or curious or grateful or loving towards that part, right? And then we learn about the part and we get to understand what's going on with the part. We're not trying to get rid of the part. We're just trying to find value in the part. Um, And then we can move towards, you know, healing or help or whatever it is the part is asking for that day. And I think in our external relationships, if we can approach our external relationships from that core, that self-led part, that core self, which, you know, that is where the image of God lives within us, right? That is where we are united with God's presence. And we take that out into the world towards others when we're operating from that place. But if one of our protectors or, you know, one of our little people is running the show, you know, I always say they're driving the bus. Yeah. Um, the way we relate to others can be really harmful, judgmental, impatient, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's the part that says, you know, you got to do everything right. 
And so like, you know, from a church standpoint, like if you're sinning, that's wrong. And so, you know, now there needs to be a consequence. Like that could be one approach, but what if we approach that person who's struggling with compassion and curiosity and get an understanding of what's going on? Because um, a big part of my dissertation study is really surrounded around the belief of that we all have had trauma of some sort. Some of us have really deep, dark, complex traumas, but most of us have had some sort of trauma in our life that impacts how we relate to others. And my, my theory is, honestly, if we could learn how to be self-led, if we can operate from that Imago day within us, that we can find unity with ourselves, with God, and with others. That's so good. I think you just explained how we fulfill the commandment to love ourselves. And yes. Us, right? Because we exactly. want to do that, but we fail at it miserably. That's right. Just... And which is okay. We want to have compassion for the parts of us that feel miserably, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no bad parts. Uh. <laughs> but it, it, I think it enables us to be able to more authentically do that instead yeah. of loving through correction or loving through whatever our protector is. Like you said, our managers that are out there or our firefighters that are out there. Um, it's it's just we impose things then instead of moving toward. And I think that that is such a beautiful way of saying it. That's what I was going to say, the move toward. Um, we had Jenna Remorsma on our podcast last year, um, IFS author and therapist, and um, her whole concept is moving towards, but it's, yeah, like you said, it's the IFS and moving towards those parts of yourself. But then when we extrapolate that to move towards others in community, or I know I heard you say this in the bio, and I don't know if we have time to talk about it, but it looks like you've done a lot of work moving towards marginalized communities and how, how can we do that as a society more? Um, it, it's just, it, the, like you said, the implications for living this out would just be like amazing, exponential love and compassion just everywhere. But I don't know, Deidre, do we have time to ask her about moving towards marginalized com communities? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, I, you know, again, most of the work I've done has been with trafficking survivors, teenage girls, adult women, some adult men who've been trafficked. And, you know, when you see someone at their core, like that is what draws me to humans is to see the image of God in front of me. And, you know, I think we are all image bearers. And I, I really live from a place that everybody has a core self that's good. And, you know, that is my genuine belief. And I always, you know, this is very poor, like for me to say, but, you know, I think if we can authentically believe that we can authentically love people well. And so, you know, working with trafficking survivors can be challenging. Like it's, it's not necessarily easy. Like, you know, they, they may cuss at you. They may throw things at you. Uh, they may go back and forth into the life and, you know, be harmed over and over and over again. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, like, you know, what's going on. And for me, what they do or what's happened to people who have these severe trauma or the marginalized communities, like, I, and I'm talking about severe trauma right now, I'm not necessarily talking about all marginalized communities, but I, I think it is being able to see humanity um, in front of me and to love that humanity. And you know, when we draw it back into a place of talking about marginalization, um, because that's a big, much bigger pool with a lot of complexities to it. And I think 
you know, understanding diversity is really important when we talk about marginalization. Um, I think understanding what inclusion means and how to honor culture and how to see the complexity of human relationships and how each individual have, kind of has their own way of being in the world. Um, I, I think, how can we not be in awe of the humans that stand in front of us? It just blows me away because I, I don't know, I, I think it is such a privilege to get to meet all the different people I get to meet. And if we say, hey, I'm only gonna hang out with people like me, I am missing out on this big world that I think is the kingdom of God that lives with us right now. Yeah. Part of what we do at Dallas Grace are uh, women's mini retreats, weekend retreats. Yeah. And a lot of times these women that show up, they're maybe people we've never met before, or maybe we have a, a little bit of a checkered personal history with them, or there's just been lots of different, you know, combinations of, of personalities that show up in the room. And by the end of the weekend, when someone has um, like unburdened their story, you just, you don't, there's no, it's like that meme, I think on Facebook, but there's, there's no one you wouldn't love if you couldn't, if you didn't know there's, how do you say it? <laughs> there's no one you couldn't love if you knew their story or something like that, but whatever, like when people unpack yeah. their story to you, like yeah. compassion overflows from it. So if we walk That's around right. always shelled up because we're living it, to wrap this back up without being in our ventral system, yeah if I'm saying all of those words right you are um, okay then then we are we're missing that connection and that compassion of um letting someone see our story and then seeing theirs as well that's right I was just about to say that it's such a good wrap up because <laughs> going back to what you said how do we have connection if we're operating just out of our parts that are in these other systems you know that's it, it breaks it down it just we don't have true connection so I think this is a really important word for us to hear and for us to embody. Um, I really appreciate the work you're doing. I would like to say I'd like to read your dissertation when you're finished, but that not if it's 294 pages. <laughs> I'll skim it. You wait for the book after the there dissertation. Yeah, yeah. That'll be much better, I promise. Yeah, let's do that. You get your book out and come back here and tell our audience about it. We'd love that. There you go. <laughs> Tracy, thank you for the work you have been doing and that you're still doing and for just your willingness to be here sharing with us today. We so appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been wonderful. And that wraps up another episode of the Dauntless Grace Exchange. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review so other people can find us. You can follow us on social media to stay connected. We're on Instagram at Dauntless Grace Ministries and our Facebook page is Dauntless Grace. For more about the Enneagram, visit our website at dauntlessgrace.org for coaching and training opportunities. And you can follow me at Enneagram Megan on Instagram. And be sure to check out our website for more information about today's podcast. Plus, you can click the resources tab to find books by all the authors we've spoken to or about. And you can find it at dauntlessgrace.org.